Good morning. I told the first service, uh, my true confession is whenever I see Beth Moore, I think, I want to grow up to be just like her. <laughs> she is an amazing teacher of the Word. If you haven't ever sat through a Beth Moore study, well, with your time, excited about the men's study, uh, you need to be here, you need to be a part of that. It'd be awesome. Hey, um, I want to direct your attention to the bulletin, uh, and in the very back of the bulletin is a section we call Notes. And a couple things that I want to point out to you. First of all, we would really like you to take notes. Even if all you do is write down that one or two things that you feel like the Lord's prompting you to, it will help you to hold on to it. You may not ever even need to look at these again, but the very act of writing it down does something different. We remember more of what we write down than what we just hear. There's statistics to all of that, but I can't remember what they are, but I know it's more. So write things down. It'll help you. Take notes. Be as detailed as you want or just wait for that one time where you feel like, oh, I need to remember that, and then just put it to, to writing, and, and you'll do a better job remembering it. But the main reason I wanted to point to is if you look at the very top, it says message resource. Um, there's a, a link there um, to a Tim Keller sermon uh, that I listened to this week uh, that had a huge impact on me, and because it had a huge impact on me, it had a huge impact on what you're going to hear from me today. Um, and if you go and listen to that, you'll hear uh, a lot of threads of the same thing in there because that message really shaped uh, what I've been thinking about all week. And uh, the, the cool thing is uh, my homework assignment to you is to listen to it this week because it'll reinforce uh, and come at the very things we're talking about from a little different angle. Just be a great way to kind of lock in uh, what we're talking about. So we're in the middle of a uh, three-week series, week two of a three-week series called On Purpose. The, the idea here is that, that we want to share with you what we are doing at Grace purposefully, how we are trying to do church on purpose, for a purpose, to help you to live into your purpose. And in the, in the time of, of teaching through this, hopefully what it does too is it helps you to think through what do you need to do to be on purpose? What do you need to do to live for a purpose? So last week we talked about this guy that's up on the screen, uh, this guy that we call Joe Grow, and all of you have helped me with all the ways that Joe could be both male or female, from Josephine to hyphens, all kinds of creative ways to make Joe both male and female, but we didn't want it to be a gender thing. We want you to just think about Joe Grow, and we talked last week that, that the heart of discipleship for us, the best way for us to see and to experience uh, uh, seeing people grow in their understanding of God is, is summarized by three words, to hear and obey. And so when we grow in our ability to hear the voice of God in our lives, when we become more and more attuned to what God is doing in our lives, and we act in obedience, that in and of itself is a picture of discipleship. So we exist as a church to help you to come to Jesus, to know Jesus, to understand Jesus more, to have this, this working understanding of your faith in your life so that you can hear from Jesus. So we want to help you to listen and talk about different ways that we listen to God. And we want to inspire you to act in obedience. In the words of the great theologian Nike, we want you to just do it. When you hear the voice of God in your life, just do it. Because you know that God knows what you need better than you know what you need. It's that walk of faith. And interestingly enough, I had a conversation right after the first service. Somebody was asking me what they thought they should do and whether or not they should. And the truth of the matter is when I just looked at them and said, you know what you need to do, right? They said, yep, I know. The question is, are we going to do it when we know what God wants us to do? So 
Um, what, what we did as a church is we began as leadership a couple of years ago asking the question, if this, is, if this is what it looks like for someone to grow, if it's about hear and obey, how do we come alongside that person and helping them to grow? What we do know is that this isn't about trying harder. This isn't about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This isn't a, a self-help sort of theology. And so, so when we start to talk about things that you need to do, what we don't want you to hear is if you do these things you're going to grow because what we know is it's a work of the Spirit in us. None of us change. None of us grow spiritually unless the Spirit of God is moving in us. But the question is, how do we position ourselves in such a way to hear from God, to respond in obedience? So what came out of that discussion, so what we started asking ourselves is if, if someone came into our office, this was the, the leadership court grade, somebody walked in and said, look, I just met Jesus. I just gave my life to Jesus. What do I do now? The answer to the question was, was all over the board. We all had a different answer for the question. And the problem is, if somebody really did, what's the strategy? How do we come alongside them in really helping them? We ought to have the same answer as a leadership and as a church to help Joe to grow spiritually. So what came out of that conversation was the six essentials. And you've heard us talk about the six essentials before, but I want to just throw them up on the board real quick again so that you know what we're talking about, put it all into context. But the idea is, if the, if the core of for Joe is to hear and obey, and I'm going to try to draw Joe first. You're already laughing. I'm not even done yet. I like that his arms are up. I never even thought about that. Like he's praising it. I didn't think about it until today when I drew that. So anyway, so that's a poor rendition of Joe. Um, but that's Joe. And the idea was that there's six essentials. Remember, we talked about this before, but essential is like an element. It's part of a whole. I like to think of it as a cake recipe. If you take any in ingredient out of the cake recipe, uh, it ruins the cake. They all are necessary to make it. So there's six essentials. And the first one is that you gather, and you're doing that right now. It's really the simple fact of coming to church. There's something that happens when we're together, when we worship corporately, when we, when we, we sing, and, and it was going on today, and you could feel the Spirit of God in the room, and when we sit under the teaching of the pastor, and, and we meet in the lobby, all of the stuff that goes on at, at, at church can't go on somewhere else, and what we want you to know is that's an integral part of your spiritual development. It's an integral part of you growing and learning to hear and obey, so we want you to be here, and so what comes out of that conversation is be consistent actually be here because what we know is we have people a lot of people at grace who come once every six weeks once every eight weeks and they're putting their ability to hear and obey at jeopardy because they're not here consistently so be here consistently and then we talk about connect and we talk about connect we're just talking about um the, the idea of community that you are actually gathering with other people outside of sunday morning sharing your faith and that's what we're going to spend most of our time today and then we talk about serving when we talk about serving, it's not just that we want to get more people busy, but the scriptures tell us that you are God's workmanship, that you're created in Christ Jesus to do a good work, which he prepared in advance for you to do. And there's nothing more life-giving for a follower of Jesus than to discover what that good work God prepared in advance for you to do, what that serving is that God prepared. And the only way to discover that is to begin to serve, to get out of your seats and begin to, to do things. And then you begin to discover, somebody told me at the, um, at the lunch last week, they said, well, one thing is for sure, I've learned that I'm not supposed to work in children's. And they were laughing about that. And, and I said, you know what, that's a good thing. Sometimes we just need to learn what we're not supposed to do so that we can discover what we're supposed to do. But that person wouldn't have discovered that had they not stepped out and done it. So these are what we call the outer essentials. We call them outer essentials because we do these things together. 
we do these things in community. We do them as a group. And then we talk about the inner essentials, that, that you need to have a heart of devotion. The scriptures say that the eyes of the Lord seek throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him so he can show himself strong. So we want you to have a heart of devotion. We want you to have a heart of generosity. And we want you to have a desire to have influence. The very fact of the matter is the reason we are called, the reason God calls us, the reason we are God's chosen people is we are chosen to make God known. Spiritual development, growing more and more like Jesus, is always always, always for the sake of others. We grow so that we can make God known to others. God reveals himself to us so that we can help reveal God to others. God uses us. So these are the six essentials. And today, we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about this one essential, connect. And so, and so I should look at my notes so I have some idea where I'm supposed to be. So we're going to talk about connect, and here's what connect is. It, connect is to live on purpose with like-minded people, to live purposefully with people who are, are gospel-centered, living in community, gathering together outside of Sunday morning to encourage one another, to, to help each other in, in their journey with God. So last week we showed the video about Christianese, and um, that got such a warm response as an educational video that we decided to bring another educational video this week to help you to understand a little bit about small group dynamics. So with no further ado, let's watch this instructional video. Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business, trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? Are you just looking for a place to kick it, network, maybe get some free grub? Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. We're not here to deal with messy stuff like feelings and emotions. You got problems? You deal with that. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We don't really want to do life together. Frankly, at shallow small group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless you're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth? Who wants growth? I had a growth removed last week. It wasn't pleasant. There's no pressure here to remember each other's name. What's going on, buddy? Oh, hey man, how's it going? Oh, dude. Captain, what's going on? We know you have a name, and that's the important thing. Group discussion? You got tickets to the big game? Sweet. Let's spend some time on that. Oh, you and your wife are struggling financially? There's tension in the relationship? Uh, that's not really the vibe we're going for. We avoid conflict like the plague. Who wants cake? <laughs> Come on and get it! And there will never, ever be an awkward silence. That's our guarantee to you. We hate bad theology as much as the next guy, and we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say we're superficial, but hey, the word supers and superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group, because when things get too deep, people drown. Won't you join us? Yeah. 
So um, just in case there's any misunderstanding, that's, I think, what we call satire. Um, that isn't really what we're shooting for. Um, but I did think it was funny. I send it to a few people, which is typically what I'll do if I'm looking at a video and say, what do you think about showing a Sunday? And the number one response was, I think I've been in that small group. So uh, I'm not sure that's a good thing. But here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to ponder a question for just a minute. And the question is this. What effect, what effect does the gospel have on community? I really want you to think about the question. What effect does the gospel have on community? You could say it a little bit differently. If you really believed, if you really understood, if you really lived into the gospel, how would it affect community here at Grace? Just think about the question for a moment. How does the gospel really affect community? What I want to do with the time remaining is I want to answer that question. And I want to do it by spending a little time helping us to understand, well, what is community? And then we'll spend a little time understanding, well, what is the gospel? Because if you don't understand the question, then we're certainly not going to have a very good answer to the question. So we're going to start with community. What, what really is community? Is community really necessary? Is, is it really something we need? Do, are we really required to connect if we want to as an integral part of the six essentials? I told you that I was um, kind of impacted by this Tim Keller sermon, and, and one of the things he said in the sermon was he said there's two groups of people that come to Redeemer. He has this big church in New York. He's very successful. He's, a, he's, a, he's an amazing um, teacher, but as he was describing the two groups of people, I realized that those same two groups of people exist at Grace as well. As well. And the first group of people are people who come to Grace, and they experience Jesus, and we see life change in them. We literally see them change. They change their behaviors. They change their patterns of life. Their marriages are transformed. Their relationship with their kids get better. Their, their work life gets better. We see this dramatic change. So our mission statement here at Grace is we are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. And there are certain people that we interact with where we see them becoming more and more like Jesus. We can literally see life transformation in them. And it's one of the greatest joys of working in the church and sitting with somebody and, and hearing about how God is changing them. So one of our values is life change, that we are committed to actually being different to experiencing life change. So there's that group of people. And then there's another group of people who come to Grace and they say things to us like, I love Grace. I love coming to church. When I come on Sundays, I feel so inspired. When I come on Sundays, I always, it's, it's always such a good experience for me. Or I'll see somebody and they'll say, I need to, I need to come to church because I always feel better at church. But when I spend time with those people and when we actually get down to the, to the brass text, the truth of the matter is there isn't much different in their lives. They've been coming here a long time, but they really haven't experienced any change. They're kind of still stuck in the same ruts. They're kind of still doing the same things. Their marriages really haven't been transformed. Their relationships really are hard. They're really in the same sin patterns that they were in even sometimes years ago when they first walked into the church. And the question we got to ask ourselves is, is what's the difference? And I think the difference between group one and group two is group two doesn't know what it means to go to church. You see, group two would say to me, I, I love coming to church, but they don't understand that, that this is not church. What we do on Sunday morning for 70 to 75 minutes isn't church. This is church. What happens when we do all of these things together, that becomes church. And the problem is you're not getting the full experience. Now, is it important that you come? Absolutely. Are we glad that you're coming? We are. Do we know that God is moving in your life and, and prompting things in your life? Yeah, that's that thing that you talk about, like I'm inspired, I, I feel better. But if you want to go to the next level, if you actually want to experience life change, then it's going to require 
all of these things in your life. Church is not enough to really bring you to a place of life change. The difference between feeling good and having radical transformation, one of the key differences is community. Connecting with others who are living into and out of the gospel. Connecting with others who encourage you. Connecting with others who inspire you. Connecting with others who challenge you. All of that plays a huge role in whether or not we actually experience life change. Here's the deal. We don't like to admit this. We, we, and especially in our American culture, we hate this. But we are radically transformed by the company we keep. We are a product of the company we keep. We are a product of our family of origin. We are a product of our, our family that we live in. We are a product of our friendships. We are a product of our society. At some level, we are a product of the company we keep. And we don't like it, but it's truth. So the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, make no mistake, bad company corrupts good character. Well, if bad company corrupts good character, then it stands to reason that good company must edify character, that good company must build up our character, that if we spend time with the right group of people helping us in our walk with God, that it can actually make us stronger, can actually help us walk out our faith. So there is this opportunity for us to be intentional about the company we keep because the company you keep really is what determines who you are in a lot of ways. So... We know that you're a product of the company you keep, or hopefully you can agree with me on that. And if we are, then, then how much more so for our children? Our children are a product of the company they keep as well. They are affected by their peer group way more than we as parents want to admit. As a matter of fact, all of my kids at one point or another went through a season of time where the, the opinions of their friends trumped anything I wanted from them. And my kids have been great kids and made good choices, but there was a time in their life where I knew they were being deeply influenced by their peer group. So one of the things I want to do for just a minute is kind of explain to you how we do church here at Grace for the Youth and show you the purposefulness behind the way we do youth ministry. So I have four kids. I've been at Grace for over 20 years. I've only been on staff for nine, a little bit less than nine years. So for a long time, I was just coming to Grace. I was doing what you were doing. I didn't work here. This was just the church I came to. My kids grew up at the church. And so uh, for all of my kids, they all grew up going to youth group. They all grew up coming on a, on a regular basis. And by the time they were in high school, every one of my four kids ended up with a peer group that helped them to get through high school, a peer group that helped them to make better choices. Did they do everything perfect? Absolutely not. But, but it was, were they an important influence in their lives to help them navigate the difficulties of getting through public school, the difficulties of living as a teenager? They, it made a, a huge impact in all of my kids' lives. I said to the earlier service that one of the thrills for me is when Jake, my youngest, calls his small group and they go do something and the church has nothing to do with it. It's not a sanctioned small group meeting. It's just his friends that he's done, I almost said dead life with. I, got, I, I was trying so hard to get that out of my vocabulary since that video last week. They're friends that he's hung out with and gotten to know. And so he's traveling on a journey with them, but it's having a huge impact on who he is because it's good company for him. So what ends up happening here at Grace is you're, you're, you give us your kids. You entrust your kids to us literally uh, right out of the chute. They're pre-kindergarten, and we put them in a small group setting. So they will have a teaching time in a small group setting. And then they get into elementary school, what we call Wombaland, and they have a teaching time, and then they have a 
small group setting. And then they get into storm or roots, the junior high ministry, or 45 degrees uh, before that, and there's large group time, and then there's a small group setting. And then by the time they get to junior high, the small groups have been established by gender and by grade, and they have a small group leader. And so they'll meet during the week, uh, one week, and they'll do the big stuff, and then they'll meet in a different week, and they'll actually have small group settings. A lot of times in the homes of the kids. By the time they get to high school, those small group leaders are still with them, and they, they're, they're journeying with them. And, and by the time they get through with school, they have a peer group or a group of friends. And, and it doesn't always work that it's that exact group, but they've done enough stuff together that they become friends, that they become important to one another. I'm just having a total... I don't know if you know this. Sometimes when I'm preaching, I'm thinking about something other. So we have someone in our midst today who just flew back from China. So my son, Robbie, is here. He's one of our partners in China. But my guess is, are you up there? My guess is he might be sitting with a young lady named Rachel. Are you guys both here? You can stand up. Stand up. Rachel was our partner in Morocco. Look. I didn't know I was going here at all. It just sort of hit me. Uh, Robbie and Rachel are getting married next Friday. Thank you, guys. I love you. My whole point is, where did they meet? They met in youth group. They met around the Word of God. They met in small group studies. They learned to follow Jesus together. And now they're getting married. And I'm not saying everybody that comes to youth group is going to get married. That would be kind of a big statement I've tried to make. But you get what I'm trying to say. There's, there's this company that they've kept that's affected who they are. It's a powerful thing, and it's a part of how we do grace on purpose. And we know it's important, so we want by the time your kids to get out of school to know, look, I need community around me if I'm going to walk with Jesus. So I go off to college, and I'm going to get into crew or some other group of, of kids that are making right choices. We want that to be part of their DNA. So that's what we do for the youth. And then for the adults, we say to ourselves, how do we do that for you? as the adult population at Grace, and say, look, when we do Tuesdays at Grace, there is a small group component to every single Bible study that we do. Why do we do that? Because we want you to be gathered around that table, sharing with each other, getting to know each other, becoming friends with each other, and the win for us is when you begin to do life outside of this building with no, us not having to coordinate it, and you're hanging out together, and you're challenging each other, and you're living out your Christian faith with one another, and you're helping each other to be stronger in the Lord and to grow. It's a powerful way to get to know. So maybe you're new at Grace, and you're saying, I don't know how to get involved. I don't know how to plug into Grace. Come on Tuesdays and sit around a table and meet some people. And maybe you've been here a long time, and you're already connected. Come on Tuesdays and reach out to someone and draw them into connection. This is going to be most successful when it's part of our DNA and not a program that we run. So that's the, the idea of community. And once again, I have no idea where I am in my notes, so give me one second here. It's all your fault, Robbie. Once again. <laughs> so back to the question. What effect does the gospel have on community? If we really believe and understood and lived into the gospel, how would it affect our small groups, how would it affect community here at Grace? So we, we've talked a little bit about community. I, I hope you know what I mean when we talk about connect. I hope we've, we've put enough of a vision around that that you get it. But what do we mean when we talk about the gospel? Well, the literal definition of gospel is just good news. The gospel defined is good news. And, and we know that the message of Jesus is good news. But if I just said to you, the gospel is good news, it wouldn't be nearly enough information for you to grasp why and how this should have a huge impact on how we do community. So grab your Bibles, and some of you are wondering if I was ever going to get to that, and I am. 
Grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. If you're using the Bibles under your seats, it's page 815. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to read verses, excuse me, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. This is probably one of the clearest definitions, if you will, of the gospel. And you'll see it in the way that, that Paul is writing. So he says these words, he says, Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. So he's, he's explaining what he's about to say. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I have passed on to you as of first importance. I love it that he says that. It says that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Scholars believe that, that verses 3 and 4 are a, a creed that was spoken by the church whenever they would come together. Christ died according to the scriptures. Christ was buried and rose again according to the scriptures because the early church needed to be reminded of the gospel. They needed to come together and every time they would meet, they would say those words to realize that it just wasn't a, a moment in time. It just wasn't this historical anomaly that, that actually all of the scriptures pointed towards the fact that Jesus would be born where he was born and when he was born and how he was born and that he would live a life the way that he lived in life, that all of it was foretold in the scriptures and then that he would die this horrific death on a cross was foretold in the scriptures and that he would be buried for three days was foretold in the scriptures and that he would raise again on the third day. All of the scriptures pointed this and so the early church would meet together to remind themselves of the heart of the gospel. And Paul says, look, this is of first importance because the truth of the matter is if what I just said isn't true, then we are wasting our time in this room. If I, what I just said isn't true, then Christianity means nothing. If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, if he isn't who we teach that he was, then we have nothing to hold on to. It's of first importance. It's the very root and the hinge of everything we believe and everything we experience with God, that Jesus really was fully man and fully God, that he really did walk the earth. It's a historical fact. And if you read that passage, Paul actually gives the historical evidence right after that of this Jesus who walked the earth. He talks about the witnesses that saw him. It has to be true that he was crucified, that he was buried, and then he rose again. If we have anything to stand on, in our faith. Everything we experience with God hinges on this truth. So what does that mean for you and I? What does that mean for us? Practically, what does it mean? Turn just a few pages over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. If you're, again, in the Blue Bibles, it's page 827. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and, the, and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. All he's saying here is, look, we've all sinned. We've all screwed up. We all 
are objects of God's discipline. We all are in a place where we deserve God's wrath. And then he writes this amazing word. He writes the word but in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were guilty, God gave us life. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Excuse me, in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Verse 80 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not for yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul says, We were all far from God, we were all enemies of God, we were all under God's wrath. But, and if you look at verses 4 through 6, let me just show you the highlights from that. But because of his great love, God who was rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 8, Paul summarizes everything he just said in one sentence. He says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Not from yourself, it is a gift from God. All that we have is made possible by the grace of God. We don't do anything. We can't do the six essentials to earn something from God. We can't try harder and do more to get God's favor in our lives. What we need to understand is it's a gift that we were far from God and Jesus came and he died and he was buried and he rose again to save us and all we have to do, and go back to Jamie's singing, is surrender. All we have to do is recognize our desperate need for a savior and receive the gift that he's already given us. There is this picture that we need to hold on to in the gospel that we really don't bring anything to the table. None of us deserves what we have that we live under this amazing picture of grace. All that is required is surrender. So for some of you, it just made sense. Maybe even when Jamie was singing, she said, some of you need to surrender to Jesus. Maybe that was the first time you ever surrendered. Maybe you're sitting there today and you're like, oh, I get it. If you get it today and it finally makes sense, all you need to do is receive the gift that God has for you. All you need to do is say in, in your own heart, God, I, I am a screw-up. I can't do this on my own. I need Jesus and invite that into your life. And that begins the journey with Christ. So some of you may be in that place, but some of you may have known Jesus for decades and decades. And what I challenge to you and the challenge I have felt all week is, is I really barely understand the gospel. The truth of the matter is, I, I know but a sliver of the gospel, because if I really understood the gospel, it would knock me off my feet. If you really understood the gospel, it would leave you speechless. If you really understood the gospel, it would create an awe in you that, that would just rock your world. And so my encouragement to you, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, is to ponder the gospel. Think about the gospel. Ask yourself, do I really believe all of that stuff that Doug just read? Do I really believe all of those passages? Do I not just know it? Do I really know it deep in my heart? Because the truth of the matter is, the more we know the gospel, the more we are radically transformed by the truth of the gospel. 
The gospel has this amazing ability to affect everything we are and everything we do. We could easily preach a long series entitled The Effects of the Gospel, the, the, the Benefits of the Gospel. But what I want to do is I want to, with just what little time we have remaining, is I want to talk about two reasons why the gospel has such a major impact on community. And the first major reason is the gospel serves as a model for us. The gospel is a, a living, experienced model for you and I of how we are to live our lives. Lots of you know John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for a friend. Lots of you know that passage. You've heard that passage enough that you could have quoted that passage. But did you know that the verse right before it, which would be 15, 12, is Jesus talking. He says, my command is this, love each other the way I've loved you. Here's what I'm telling you you need to do. You need to love each other the way I loved you. And greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for a friend. Jesus modeled for us the way we are to respond to one another. The problem with the verse that says greater love has no man than this, and he laid down his life for a friend, is most of us think, well, how many times do I get to die? Once. So when am I going to have an opportunity to actually sacrifice my life for somebody else? That seems pretty dramatic, doesn't it? But the truth of the matter is we get to lay down our lives hundreds of times every day for other people. The question is, are you willing to do it? The question is, do you know the gospel so well? Does the gospel have such an impact on your life? Have you lived in and been, had the gospel modeled to you that you live in such a way that you're laying down your life for other people? We have a value here at Grace written on the wall of being others-focused. We define that as sacrificing yourself in order to prefer others. And I believe we are either others-focused, laying down our lives for others, or we are self-focused, worried about getting what we want, worried about getting what we think we deserve, get worried about our own needs. James 3, the book of James, he's talking in, in the chapter 3, and he says there's really only two kinds of wisdom in the world. There's wisdom that's from the devil, and he calls it selfish ambition, right? Living for self. And he says selfish ambition will lead to disorder, it will lead to evil, it will lead to chaos. But then he says, there is this other wisdom in verse 17 of chapter 3. He says, this wisdom comes from heaven, and it's pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace receive a harvest of righteousness. When we are others-focused, when we live into what was modeled through the gospel and lay down our lives for other people, when we have the needs of other held above our own, then, then all of this fruit comes forth from that kind of wisdom. We have this peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere. What effect does the gospel have on community? It has this radical effect on community because suddenly we are treating each other completely different. We have an, an entirely different way of responding to one another. So the gospel serves as a model for us. And the second reason the gospel is so huge to community is the gospel humbles us. Humility is not about being shy. Humility is not about being mousy. Humility is not about being passive. Humility is not about any of those things. The, the picture of humility in the scriptures, I mean, if you think about humility in the scriptures, it's really about knowing who you really are in Christ, knowing who you really are, knowing that you are a son and a daughter of the Most High God, but knowing that you didn't do anything to get there. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You are a son and daughter of God, and you didn't deserve it, 
and you didn't earn it, and it creates this place of deep humility in us. So when we read Ephesians, Ephesians 8 and 9 says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourself. It's a gift, not by works. Three different ways, Paul says over and over, you didn't do anything. It's not by works. And then he says, so that no one can boast. When you really know the gospel, it creates a deep sense of humility in you. And I want to be honest and and just ask you this. You know, here's the problem. The minute God moves in our lives, we are at risk of spiritual pride. One of the reasons I want you to listen to the Tim Keller sermon is he does a great job of unpacking the effects of spiritual pride on community. But, But the fact of the matter is the minute God does something in my life, the minute I feel like God used me in in teaching a sermon, the minute I feel like God is moving, at that moment in time, I am at risk of spiritual pride. As a matter of fact, more often than not, that's exactly where I go, look at what God did. Look at how awesome I am. Look at all this guy. And the gospel reminds me I am just a worm. I have nothing to offer anyone unless God gives it to me. The gospel reminds me of where I came from and where I am and what price was paid so that I could be a son or a daughter of the Most High God. The gospel humbles us and keeps us responding to one another with pride and arrogance. You see, if you really understood the gospel, how could you ever stay angry with anyone? If you really understood how far from God you were and how what links God went to rescue you, how could you ever hold the sins of somebody else against them in a way? The gospel changes everything. The question is, what effect does the gospel have on community? What I want you to do is broaden your understanding of community. I mean, we were here to talk about this biblical community, and that's one thing, but but how does the gospel affect your marriage? How does the gospel affect your relationship with your kids? How does the gospel affect your friendship? How does the gospel affect your working relationship? How does the gospel change this church? It affects it in every way because it changes the way we respond to one another. The challenge for you, the challenge for me, is to sit with the gospel. Really sit with the gospel. Really allow the truth of the gospel to penetrate your very being. The band's going to come up, and we're going to move towards communion. And I love the fact that today's communion. Because Jesus said, look, I'm going to put this, I'm going to put this sacrament into place. And whenever you gather together, I want you to take of these elements, and I want you to take of the elements so that you will remember me. He's really saying, I want to remind you of the gospel. Every time you take this, I want you to stop and remember me. And you know what's fascinating is the scripture tells us before you take of these elements, you are to examine yourself, to ask yourself, how am I doing with God? Like, how am I doing with this gospel thing? How am I doing with the truth of what what I know to be true in the gospel? So there's this picture of examining yourself, but it also says if you have angst with your brother, if you have ill feelings towards another person, that you are to go and make it right with them before you come to the table because the gospel is put in place to help us to live in community. The gospel is put in place to help us to live right before God and right before others. The gospel has a radical effect on who we are. So we're going to take communion and the servers can go ahead and come down and and they're going to pass out the elements and then we're going to take them together. But my encouragement to you is, is reflect on the gospel. Do not let this be another tradition. Do not let this be something that we just do because we do it. When you hold the cup, when you hold the bread, ask the Spirit of God to remind you of the gospel. Remind me of the price that you paid to make me a son 
or a daughter. Lord, I just pray that even as these elements are passed out, that you would do what only you can do. You would speak to us, that you would show us the length that you went to to redeem and call us sons and daughters. Help us to live in that truth. Help us to have great joy in the truth that we were far from you, but you rescued us. Lord, as we take hold of the elements, help us to be mindful of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So they're going to pass it out, hold on to it, and we'll take it together.